You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Okay, my guest on the Freedom Pact podcast today is my favorite mixed martial artist of all time. It's Mr. Dan Hardy. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, mate. It's good to be here. Good to talk to you. Well, you haven't uh, come on the show today to promote anything in particular. I just reached out and, um, you know, you obliged. But I do have your book behind me here because a lot of the stuff I want to talk about, um, I first picked up in your book. It's a funny story how I came to read the book, actually. I was in university, I think, when it came out. And I was very far into my overdraft. I didn't have a lot of money you know, as students usually are. And I was doing my dissertation and my university sort of gave a grant to um, certain students in certain uh, situations from certain backgrounds. They give you £300 to put towards buying books for your dissertation. Um, and we had, you know, we could use them in specific, I think it was Waterstones. Um, I sort of just found where I needed online, PDFs, and I spent my £300 uh, I bought Part Reptile, I bought Uriah Faber, Law, Laws of the Ring, I bought John Kavanaugh, Win or Learn, and I just bought wherever I wanted, so big shout out to Coventry University for the book. Oh, <laughs> to Coventry for the grant. That's, that's uh, Money well spent, that is, my friend. There's some really good wisdom in those books. Uh, check out Alexander Gustafsson's as well, if you get an opportunity, The Mauler. That's a well, good book. Well, funny, actually. There's a this is like a little scheme in Tesco in the UK where you get secondhand books, um, right. I was walking past the table yesterday, and for some reason in my local Tesco, there was a copy of uh, The Mauler, uh, so I just picked it up for free. So I, I did pick that up two days ago, actually. Um, Perfect. So I want to jump in at the start, something you say at the start of the book, when you sort of explain your philosophy and your love of fighting. You say that my life to date has revolved around fighting and my pursuit of striking a man's jaw with the optimum speed power and time in to rotate his head, disturb the grid of nerves and blood vessels, connecting his brain to his skull and render him temporarily unconscious. A lot of people listening to this who aren't fight fans, they might uh, struggle with that one. But if you could, what is it about the sort of beautiful violence in this sport that you gravitate towards? You know, I, I think there's, I mean, there's a number of things. It's the pressure that it brings, especially as a, with striking arts, because the, you know, the the window of of opportunity or mistake is so much narrower when it comes to striking. We, you know, with grappling arts, you can kind of feel what's happening if you're aware of it. You know, you can feel the process that you're being put through in order to be submitted. With striking, it can be a split second, and you 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 know, I mean, the Carlos Condit fight's a good example. I was convinced I was going to hit him and knock him out. And it didn't even cross my mind that he was going to do the same thing to me. And I, I like those margins for error being so narrow because it means I have to be entirely focused. And honestly, the only time that my brain is ever quiet is when I'm fighting. All the other time, there's, there's 10 conversations going on at the same time and it, it feels quite chaotic. Whereas a, a fight situation, because it is it is literally fight or flight, I mean, it's everything or nothing, it, it automatically tunes my brain in. And then 
you know, to, to be in that state and to try and manage that state is something that I never really, I never really was able to do as a competitor. I see it very, very occasionally in other fighters, you know, someone that has the ability to like Adesanya against Costa, for example, you know, he has the ability to calmly control the environment in front of him, even though it's a very chaotic one and, and apply a, an art and a science to it to, mm-hmm. to get the fight won. Uh, that for me is the, is the height of competition. I can't think of any other time when the stakes are higher unless you're pitching yourself against nature and, you know, jumping off a, a mountain or something. This for me is, you know, one-on-one. And the other thing, the thing that's that's missing a little bit in that statement is that I'm not, I'm not thinking about the beauty of doing that to someone just walking mm. down the street. The beauty is the fact that the person I'm trying to do it to is also trying to do the same thing to me. And, you know, that's what raises the stakes for me, which, which puts it puts everything on in a in a heightened sense of awareness and and honestly i can't think of a time in my life when i've ever felt like that before and for you personally when you you know came into the sport i i've spoken to a lot of young fighters now i actually live 2 minutes down the road from the mat academy in uh, south wales where you know uh, uh, lewis long trains out of and you know i've i've been down there and spoken to mason jones jack shaw before and when you dive into them, they all have sort of martial arts heroes, whether it's a you know a George St. Pierre, a Dan Hardy, they've got these guys to look back on. But when you were young, this sport was pretty, you know, it was pretty fresh, it was pretty new to the mainstream. And you probably didn't have a lot of heroes in the sport at the time, other than guys outside of the sport, like a Bruce Lee, because you, you always reference your love for Bruce Lee. And I think a lot of kids these days get into martial arts. They've prob- probably never seen Enter the Dragon. What is it about Bruce Lee that sort of captivated you so much? Because of because of the way his mind works, you know, he he would draw from things outside of martial arts to put things within martial arts into a better context. You know, his ability to apply philosophy to combat sports is something that most people don't don't do and still don't do. You know, you you can watch you can watch any of his movies really, but obviously, Game of, Game of Death and Enter the Dragon are the two. You know, Enter the Dragon because that was the movie he completed and that he was able to really put his philosophy into. And then Game of Death because, you know, he says so much in that final fight scene. There are so many lessons for a martial artist in there. And, you know, even to this day, like I've spent the last two days researching Makachev against Oliveira and all the time I'm seeing things and there'll be something that he said in Enter the Dragon, which will, it will present itself in my mind and it will give me better clarity about his philosophy. Like it, it it honestly is timeless. The things that he says, it's the same with with uh, you know Marcus Aurelius meditations. Mm. You know, of course, it was written you know hundreds of years ago, but there's a there's a, a core truth to everything that he's saying, which is transferable. Another reason why the art of war has become a you know a book so popular in the business world, when in actuality it was written about warfare. You know, the 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 the, the transition from martial arts to daily life is not is not too difficult for me to do with most subjects. And Bruce Lee kind of had that in his mind. I mean, in the sixties, it's crazy to think I even, I just try and relate myself to, to how he, I mean, he was what 32 when he died, I've just turned 40 and I'm still way, way behind where he was at. I can't imagine how he arrived at the thinking that he had in the seventies, you know, while he was, you know, in his thirties, late twenties, early thirties, with the lack of resources that we've got. I mean, imagine sitting the guy down in front of YouTube or UFC Fight Pass for a day. He's, his mind would be absolutely blown. 
but his philosophies still ring true. You know, the things that he talks about, Enter the Dragon, that, you know, that first scene when he's walking along with the monk, you know, when the time comes, I do not hit, it hits all by itself. I used to listen to that when I, you know, before school in the morning, I'd have that tape playing over and over again every day. It'd get to the end of the week and I'd just rewind it and start it again on the Monday morning. And and I've I've listened to those lines over and over again. And even now, sometimes they 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 click in my head and I'm going, oh, okay, that's what he meant. That's what he meant. You know, mm-hmm. a fight is like a small play, but played seriously. You know, if you take it too seriously, if you're too tense, you can't be playful. You know, there's a lot to learn from the animal kingdom as well, which is where, you know, the, the roots of Shaolin come back in and watching animals train and play and, and kind of learn their, their you know, martial craft without them even knowing what they're doing. Um, I think a lot of people take training too seriously these days. And I think I think Bruce Lee was able to kind of hold on to it as a philosophical venture as opposed to a kind of a hard-headed, we're going to fight and see who's the toughest. I love all this stuff. I love philosophy and how it can sort of interject into the fight world. And you mentioned there about um, Shaolin. You spent a bit of time in a Shaolin temple. Um, I can't, I'm going to dive into that. But before we get there, when I was reading your book, um, or I was flicking through it the other night just to refresh my mind, um, I noticed that there was a book you mentioned by um, a bit of a friend of mine, Robert Greene. Um, you talk about the 48 Laws of Power Robert's been on this show a couple of times to to dive into those books. What is it about that book that sort of you you could take from and use in your fight career? You know, same thing. There's there's a lot of you know really really nicely worded sentences that you can you can read it you can read it over again and you can think to yourself, well, how, how does this apply to my life and how does this this logic and philosophy serve me right now? Mm. Uh, a good example. Um, that I always use when I'm explaining that book, when I'm describing that book to somebody, is um, like quite an, a, a, a quite a turbulent relationship in one of the gyms I was trained at in the US between the person that owned the gym and the head coach of the gym because they weren't the same person. The owner of the gym wanted the respect as the owner and the head coach didn't respect the owner of the gym. And there was this constant back and forth between the two when in actuality, if, if they'd have both gotten out of their own way, they'd have gotten on really well and they would have they would have allowed themselves to serve martial arts to the their, their customers much better. But because they were so at each other's throats all the time, they, they, there wasn't a mutual respect there. And I explained it to, to the guy at one point, because obviously he's got to bear in mind that he's the head coach in somebody else's gym. Mm-hmm. Now, the, 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 the one I'm talking about, I'm pretty sure it's lesson four, never outshine the master. Like, that's not, that's, there was, I, I have no, <clears throat> The, the problem that I had with this guy was that he couldn't get out of his own way and give the guy the respect that he wanted to help the relationship be less turbulent. He was so stuck in his ways that they just kept banging heads. And it was the same for both of them. They were both they were both very aggressive and abrasive towards one another. And I remember giving him that book and he said, yeah, but that's kind of, I feel like I'm kind of manipulating him. I'm, I'm like, I'm not, you're not manipulating him. You're helping him get out of his own way mm. because he's got good information that he could give you. But because you're not giving him the respect that he wants as the as the owner of the gym, you're not going to get that information out of him. He wants to share that information with you, but you don't want it because you don't respect him. Yeah. And and when he was able to kind of take himself out of the equation and go, I don't respect this guy because I don't think he's as good as he thinks he is. He was able to give him the respect that he wanted and get the information that helped them both. 
And it, it turned out to be a much better relationship in the gym just because that little bit of information, never outshine the master, is, you know, w- was put on the table in front of him. And that for me was, that's the one thing that stuck out all the way through. Whenever I would go and train with somebody, and as you said, you know, there weren't really many MMA heroes back in my day. So I was often going to people that would tell me something that was very applicable for what they were doing, but wouldn't really be applicable for what I was doing. But if I went in and go, ah, no, your karate is no good and what I'm doing, immediately they feel disrespected and they're just going to close down. Mm. And the, the thing I love about that book is that it's very digestible. I, I have the um, I have a couple more of his books as, as well. And it was just an easy one for me to carry on the road and to, you know, sometimes I just turn to a random page and read it and I would always take something from it. And that for me is one of those books, kind of like the Hagakure by uh, uh, Yamamoto, Tsunamoto, or the Book of the Five Rings or mm. Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. They're, they're books that are to hand that I can just grab if I've got two minutes and I can turn and I can take something from it. Krishnamurti as well, you know, another philosopher that Bruce Lee used to listen to a lot. His books are like that. You can pick it up, you can turn to a random page and you can consume something that will, it will give you a different way of thinking about your day or about the people around you. Um, it's a very, very powerful book that is. And I think I think one one downside to it is that people see the front cover and the title, they go, 48 laws of power i don't want power over the people around me and it's not that it's power within yourself and that that for me is the the bit that's missing out of the title Mm. 48 laws of power for you you know yeah no i i love that it was it was awesome to see you reference that book and just the way you look at philosophy in general i think even on on social media on your in your bio it says amateur philosopher um and there's there's so much in sort of old books that we can take and apply to um, our, you know, our current life. You mentioned the book of five rings there. I think I, I read that a couple of months ago and obviously it's written from a completely different perspective, but there's so many little things, you know, when he's talking about fighting, but you can just apply it to things like business or work relationships. Um, and yeah, I just love that, you know, level of philosophy and, you know, you reference Marcus Aurelius there. Stoicism seems to be one that, that creeps into to fighting a lot. I think when I spoke to George Saint Pierre, I think he he even referenced um, stoicism. What are some of your? I know you probably mentioned them there, but what are some of your favorite sort of books on philosophy? If you had to give a couple, oh, I mean, honestly, anything that anything that Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates have written. Of course, you know what, what we know of um, what we know of Socrates is through Plato, but the. You know, they they are anything that you can get your hands on is fantastic. And audio books as well. Mm. You know, I often listen to audio books over and over again because I find it sinks in a bit quicker or I'll listen to the audio book while I'm reading a, a book. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, it depends on what you're drawn to. It depends on what you're drawn to. I, I think I think Marx is interesting. I think Kant's got some interesting uh, things to talk about. But ultimately, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for the the. the I'm looking for the fundamentals of of existence. That's that's what's interesting to me. The the fundamentals of good and evil, and and because on a daily basis, I, I mean, I of course my job is mixed martial arts, but the truth is my interest is geopolitics and 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 you know, and war. I, I study war and geopolitics more than I do MMA these days, to be honest. And and I constantly find myself going over the 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 how and why is this happening. 
Mm. And it brings me back to the basic axioms of philosophy, the basic fundamentals of, of who we are as individuals, who we are as human beings and what drives us to do what we do. I, I mean, I did a I did a contemporary art course and we read a lot of Jacques Lacan and and Sigmund Freud and, you know, and as, as fascinating as they were, I still feel like there's so much more that could be stripped away from those. So everything that comes after Plato, Socrates and Aristotle is a, is an expansion on the, the foundation that they laid for me. Mm. Um, honestly, there's a lot of books as well. One of my favorite books of all time, which I've been meaning to pick up again, is uh, Walden by Henry David Thoreau. And that, although it's not at all in any way a philosophy book, it, for me it really is, because what he's what he's explaining is a philosophy for simplicity of life, mm. for stepping outside of of what people expect him to do with his life and how people expect him to live, and to do what he feels in his core is the right way to go about things. You know, living on the bare minimum, you know, not encroaching on nature, not encroaching on other people, not being trapped into things that he's inherited like farms and tools and things. It's just a beautiful book. And he talks about, um, there's a line in that, and I always butcher it because he's obviously he's far more eloquent than I am. But he talks about, you know, being born in an open pasture and suckled by a wolf so you may know with open eyes the field of which you are drawn to tend. Uh, and that was a very, very powerful line for me to read because I thought to myself, you know, so many people around the world are born into an environment where they are expected to do something like you're expected to go to school and get married and have kids. I was expected to play for Nottingham Forest when I was born. You know, of course, you know, there was some forgiveness in that when they realized I was no good at football. But everybody is is born into expectations. And what I love about that book is Henry David Thoreau. He went, you know what? I see your expectations. I'm going to place them over there and I'm going to disappear into the, into the woods and I'm going to live by the means that I think is necessary for me. And I found a lot of power for that because as you said, you know, going back, there weren't, there wasn't really MMA back in the day. So if I said to somebody, Oh yes, I'm, this is my priority. I'm at college. I'm at art college or I'm at university. And my lecturers are saying, okay, what do you want to do with your degree? And I'm, I'm like, well, the truth is I want to be a I want to be a professional martial artist. And they would laugh. And you kind of have to walk your own path. Um, um, um like that that is that was a really powerful book for me. I would recommend it for for anybody, um, you know, just to kind of reflect on their own life and and how they they go about existing and consuming and what expectations were put on their shoulders when they were born. Like as useful as philosophy is, sometimes it can be very, very difficult to get through. I mean, I'm I'm reading um, um, Odyssey at the moment by Homer, and just the language, just the way the way that, that it's written is a it's a kind of it's an uphill battle at times to get through. And I think that is a that is a downside to philosophy these days is that it's not being updated for the modern day. Hmm. I, I I love a good audio book because you can find someone that does a really good job of reading it. But again, I, you know, you have to kind of work your way through these books and. It's, I wish I wish philosophy was more more accessible for people these days. I wish there were more philosophers and less philosophy books, if that makes sense. Mm. There's a lot of people that teach philosophy. That's why you know the joke in my uh, in my bio, you know, amateur philosopher. Like I, I will always be an amateur philosopher because you know there are people that have a really good grasp of these texts. When in actuality, I just kind of harvest the bits that I need out of them to help my uh, my understanding of the world. You say, yeah, you say I'm a philosopher, but I can, it's clear to see you are, you are a deep thinker and I really appreciate that about you and how it sort of translate into your career. 
And so I wonder, you work with a lot of young fighters. And I feel like in sports these days, it's seen as the number one priority to how can we recover faster so we can train more, so we can fit in another session. Can we get another session in a week? Can we maybe add an S&C session here? But would you maybe encourage young athletes to do more mental uh, mental work alongside rather than just honing in on the physical? Absolutely. You know, this, there is so much time wasted in, in, in training, in training sessions, in training camps, in preparation for fights, just in people's early days of getting into martial arts. There's so much time wasted because they have a perception of what they think it's supposed to be. Yeah. And I've been caught up in this in, in the past as well. I, you know, I was fortunate to have a really good martial arts instructor from when I was really young and he helped me consume martial arts in a very, in a very, open-minded and enjoyable way he was a taekwondo teacher but he you can see him his photos in my book mick Rowley. Mm. um he he kept my mind open so even though we were we were learning and, and and competing in taekwondo we were still grappling we were still hitting pads like boxers you know my mind was always open and that is because he was he was in the footsteps of bruce lee um it was all about absorbing what is useful and rejecting what is useless there's a lot of people absorbing what is useless right now there's a lot of people spending a lot of time absorbing stuff that they've seen someone do on instagram one time and then they spend three weeks training to try and get that one move which has probably got a, a success rate of about five percent and i see it all the time when i'm when i'm at my gym you know I, I'm, I'm at my gym seldom because i've got good coaches there running it but when I call in, I can see some people that have improved with their basics and other people have just added a couple of Instagram highlight reel kicks to their game. And there's no real foundation to it. Mm. And the, 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 a big realization that I had a couple of years after I retired is that it's not nearly as complex as I thought it was. I, I remember feeling so overwhelmed and what felt like out of my depth when I started competing in mixed martial arts, because it, it occurred to me that there's a vast amount of knowledge that I have not got my hands on yet. I, I have I have a library in there of martial arts books that's probably a couple of thousand deep. Mm. And I look at it and think to myself, there is, there is so much information here. I need to take six months off and just consume as much of it as I can. Mm. When in actuality, if I, if I, if I start breaking things down into the axioms that, you know, the, you know, if I approach it without the emotion of, well, I like that and I don't like that. And I enjoy doing those techniques, but not those. And I look at things on a on a percentage basis of success. The things that actually work are so minor. And and then it comes back to the, the you know, the end to the dragon philosophy. Like, I don't want to learn. I don't want to practice 10,000 kicks one time. You know, the truth is, though, I also don't want to learn one kick. And I don't want to rep it 10,000 times because then I'm limiting my arsenal. So I want to find a nice middle ground between those two things. I don't want to learn every knockout I see on Instagram. But what I do want to see is if I see the, the same head kick three times, that might be something worth studying. So it's it's not one kick 10,000 times and it's not 10,000 kicks once. It's probably, what, five kicks 2,000 times a piece. So I've got some options, but I've got some variety in my game. And there's a lot of things that I realized as I was growing through my game, I could start to shed. And and I have this conversation a lot of the time with, with fighters, with young fighters. It's not as complex as you think it is. And I guess this was a benefit in Bruce Lee paying attention to, to uh, philosophers outside of martial arts. 
because uh, Krishnamurti, uh, uh, as I've mentioned before, is a he's a very very interesting person to sit and listen to. He you know he was around in the, like sort of the sixties in California, and he has a very kind of he has a very kind of condescending tone about him, which I mean I find it quite amusing, and the people around him seem to as well because they you know it, it's almost like he's pointing out something that you should have seen yourself. And and the thing that he keeps coming back to, and I sometimes write it on the floor of my gym. I have chalk in the gym. And I just write it on the floor to remind myself. He keeps saying, observe oneself, observe oneself. And that, of course, is applicable to everything in life. If I'm having a conversation with someone, I, I need to be aware of the words that are coming out of my mouth. But I also need to be aware of how those words are landing on their eardrums, because they may have a different perception of the same words that I'm using. Like I may say to somebody, you need to work harder. And what they think in their head is that my heart rate needs to be higher and I need to be sweating more. Yeah. In actuality, I might be saying you need to be you need to work harder to be better at those techniques. And working harder is not necessarily doing it harder or faster or more. It's it's doing it to the point where you're consuming it in a more efficient way. And and that that Krishnamurti philosophy, observing oneself, just as, as Bruce Lee kind of turned that on himself as a martial artist, I, I, I like to try and, you know, do that all the time. <clears throat> so when I, when I'm teaching a when I'm teaching a seminar now, and I'm about to just start a new seminar tour because what what I like I like to find a, a couple of lessons or principles and then take them out and teach them and see if I can communicate them to people that don't already understand what I'm saying. And and the 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 recent lessons I've been teaching is about using feints show somebody something, communicate something that's not accurate, communicate something so they feel like they've got a grasp of what you're saying. This is part of the game of martial arts. Now, if I'm talking to somebody in real life, I don't want to say something and have them think something else. But in a martial arts context, I, I may want to feint a jab and get them to think about that hand so I can kick them in the leg. You know, like I was saying with, with geopolitics, we've just seen the same thing in Ukraine with, with uh, you know, the the faint in the south. We're going to attack Kherson. All the Russians went, oh, we'll go down into the south to support the, the Kherson offensive. And then they went up into Kharkiv. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, that's Anderson Silva, Vitor Belfort, 101. Look at the lead leg, kick him in the face. Like, if, if you can observe yourself, you can not only refine your communication in a in a... Uh, a more effective way in daily life, but you can also control that communication in a combat sport sense. But I I want to hack the person's brain that I'm fighting. Mm. I don't want to just use better techniques than them. I don't just want to be faster or more conditioned or stronger than them. I want to hack their hard drive and download my software onto it. So then I've got control of them. You know, it's like those bugs that Rogan's always talking about that hack into the the other bug's brain and grow out of it. You know, it's it's the same thing. I'm I'm doing that to my opponent, but if I'm not observing one myself, if I, if if I don't observe oneself, then I don't learn how to enhance my communication to people that I do want to communicate with better, and I don't know how to scramble my communications for people that I'm trying to throw off my my thinking. Um. I guess we kind of went off on a bit of a weird tangent there, but but the the observing oneself it keeps coming back up. So I guess that's why I went there. <laughs> no, I, I love it, man. The the sort of mental side of this game is is what really draws me into the sport. And I think a good example you mentioned uh, you mentioned Nottingham Forest earlier. So with football, um, and we talked about the pressure of martial arts earlier. So you know, f there's a foot 
football game today, um, you know, if Manchester City lose a game of football, they know that in about three days, four days' time, they can go again and redeem themselves and everyone will forget about that last game and it's all on to this game. And maybe they'll prepare for that game for about three days. With martial arts, you have, you know, a full fight camp focused on one, well, focused on about 15 to 25 minutes. And if you lose and it hurts, you're probably going to have to sit with that for a long time before you can redeem yourself. And it's frustrating for the person. It's frustrating for fans of that person because you just want them to get back in there the next night and, you know, have that big moment. And so for you, when, you know, you were going through, uh, coming into the professional uh, sport, you know, you, you, you had this confidence that you were just going to blow through your first couple of fights. You know, martial arts is very different to boxing. There's no real, you can't really pad your record like you can in boxing. And you lost your, your debut. What does that do to your mentality? And where do you find the resilience to, to, to sit with that loss before going again? Because that must be a rough one to take. That that was a rough one for for a number of different reasons. I mean, first of all, I was I was about a year behind Paul Daly, so I was his main training partner, and he he'd fought Lee Dosky a few months before, and obviously Paul knocked him out because that's what he did to everybody. So I was in I was in the shadow of Paul Daly to start with, which was a a big shadow he cast, and I fully expected to be able to prove to to everybody in particularly in the UK MMA scene, which was the Paul I was focused on. I wanted to prove to them that we had Paul Daly, but we've also got Dan Hardy now. You know, I wanted to kind of align myself with the, kind of the fear that he instilled in his opponents. And and after that last loss, after that first loss, it was a the saving grace is that I lost because I threw everything at him, and and it was an uneducated performance. I, I was excited, I was over enthusiastic, I was completely in my mind. I was going to stop him at some point, mm. and. I learned a harsh lesson. You know, I, I I went too hard. I ran out of gas. I made some technical mistakes and, and he got me, you know, and and I, I remember, I remember on the way, on the drive home, first of all, it felt like everything had fallen apart. And then I realized to myself, well, I might as well just have another go now mm. because a loss has happened. We have to move on from it. And, and you know, you, you mentioned, you mentioned football, of course, you know, they get to play again in a few days, same with hockey. You know, I used to follow Nottingham Panthers all the time. They'd lose, they're playing the next day and they can just, you know, write that wrong. When it comes to losing and that four fight losing streak I was on was, it spanned two years. You know, you, you start to feel like a lesser version of yourself after a while. But then something that helped me kind of put it into context is, you know, uh, um, you know, the, the guys that do peep show that Mitchell and Webb, uh, Mitchell and Webb. They did a show called That Mitchell and Webb Look. And there's a there's a, a, a scene in it where Robert Mitchell's walking along the touchline of a football pitch. Yeah. And he's doing a parody of it. You know, Mitch, you know what I mean? I know the one. And yeah. he's doing a parody of, of, a, of a Sky Sports advert. Yeah. But at the same time, and he's doing it with all the intensity of, and this team are playing this team. But ultimately, everything that he says, it just doesn't matter. Yeah. It just doesn't matter because there's another game next week and there's another game. And these will be the best guys in this game. And, and, I remember looking at GSP one day and thinking to myself, he is, he is without a doubt the best mixed martial artist that I've ever seen. I was able to compete against him. I felt it myself. He's absolutely incredible. In 50 years' time, there's going to be someone that completely blows him out of the water. And most people will go, ah, oh, yeah, GSP was good, but he was only good for his time. That's important. That moment in time that he, you know, put a stitch in, you know, a stitch in that record book with his name on it. That's important. 
But he was still only given the same opportunity that I was given. He was given an opportunity to test himself and compare himself against the environment that he was in. And, you know, I look I look back at the Carlos Condit fight and, and I think, you know, same thing again. I remember being in the ambulance on the way to get my brain scan after the event. Me and my coach sitting there laughing about what had happened because of how stupid I was. And the only thing I could think in my brain is, I just wish we could go back to Saturday morning. Mm. Just just let me run this one back. Just let me go again. The, the, and the, the, the punishing thing about combat sports is that you can't. You have to sit with it. Yeah. Like you have to take ownership of it. So you can do one or two things. And this is an assessment of a person's character straight away for me. You can either do a Ronda Rousey, I'm never, ever going to watch that head kick ever again. And if the UFC do any promotional stuff with that, I'm not fighting. Like That, to me, immediately shows weakness. I don't want that weakness in me. I don't want to have fear of watching myself get knocked out. Mm -hmm. So I literally sat and watched the Condit fight until it made me laugh. And and the thing that was most difficult for me to get around was the fact that my mum was sitting front row. That was really the only pain in it. Because yeah. I didn't feel any pain. I was laughing about it within minutes of it happening. And the lesson was learned and Condit went on with his career and he took what he needed to from that and I took what I needed to from that. Mm-hmm. And had I not had that experience, had I not had that opportunity to lose and, and had the opportunity to lose to a great fighter as well who could teach me something about martial arts as well as something about my own ego in that moment, I would have just continued on the same trajectory of being the person that I was before that fight. And I wouldn't like that person that I was before the fight because I know I'm, be- I'm a better version now. Mm. So for, for as wounding as it can feel in the moment, and like we've just had the IMAF tournament, you know, there's a lot of fighters that went out to Italy to compete and, you know, they've dedicated everything to, the, to this and they feel like a loss in the IMAFs means that they're never going to be UFC champ. In actuality, that's probably not the case. You know, th- th- those losses early on will help, you know, my goodness, though it will help grow them into a better martial artist. And that's ultimately what competition is about. It's an opportunity for you to see where you're at and to see how much you can grow from it. And you've got to face the wins just like you face the losses. You know, you've got to pull them apart and be analytical and be critical and see where you can become better. And, and I'm of all the fights that I've had, the one that was most impactful in a positive way was getting knocked out by Condit. Like, cause I can watch it. I can, I can go, ah, just, just a silly mistake. He got me. That was a, that was a, a good opportunity for him to catch me when I was overextending and I was, I was stepping out of my ego. And, uh, you know, had I not, I think, I think every fight in my career has, has, has offered me one of those opportunities, whether I chose to take it or not at the time is a different thing. But when you lose, I don't think you can avoid it unless you really, really run in the opposite direction. Another um, side of the psyche I'd like to ask you about is your fighting career was halted um, due to circumstances that really weren't of your control. It, it was, you know, um, health issues and and this similar with <clears throat> when you were uh, working with the UFC as a as a broadcaster and al- and an al- and an analyst. Um, mm-hmm. leaving that world, so you you've left t- the same world twice over there in the UFC. Did you ever struggle with a, a loss of identity when you couldn't fight anymore? Because up until that point, you'd been Dan Hardy, the fighter. All of a sudden, you can't fight anymore. Did you struggle with who you were? I I, I did, yeah, because it had been everything that I was. You know, the the 
the the three months after being pulled out from the uh, from that fight was the most difficult because I I didn't feel like I could go into a martial arts gym. You know, I felt I felt disconnected from everything that I was. You know, I was living in Vegas for the sole purpose of being amongst the gyms and the fighters that were going to make me better. And I just I couldn't put myself in those circumstances, partly because I was frustrated that I couldn't do it. And partly because I was frustrated at my training partners, because it felt like they were taking for granted what they could do. You know, I remember coming back to the UK and I cornered one of my old teammates. I cornered Andre Winner down in London and he had a decent performance, but it wasn't a great performance. And I know how good he is. I know how much potential he has. And afterwards in the changing room, I it, I mean, it was, <laughs> I apologized to him because I kind of stepped out of myself a bit. Again, you know, I had to observe myself in that moment. I was so angry at him for not being as bothered as I think, as I thought he should be. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why I was never, never any good at team sports, because I can't, you know, I, I want everyone to want it as much as me. But in that moment, I realized that he, he had what he wanted and he was all right with it. And I didn't have what I wanted and I wasn't okay with it. And, and that, that loss of identity was a, was a real struggle. Um, and, you know, I, I guess, I guess sometimes to, to a certain extent it is because, you know, I watched the likes of, of McGregor and, and doing what they're doing, thinking to myself, had, had I had my time again or in a different time, my trash talk could have been so much better with the internet the way it is today. And, you know, but it, again, you know, I have to, I have to appreciate the journey that I've that I've been on and and the position that I'm in right now. And honestly, I I am in a I'm in a better position now than I would be if I was a fighter because I get to help other people understand the sport. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, you know, the sport where it is right now, you know, there are absolute killers out there. I would have to start everything all over again. And I'm 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 uh, you know, accepting of that moment. I'm I'm celebratory of the people that are pushing the sport forward, but at the same time I think I think fighters always want to be in there. I think you, you know DC, Bisping, Felder. I think a, a part of them would always want to step back in there just for that little bit of a rush. Hmm. But you know, there's a lot more to martial arts than, than being an active competitor, and I, I do feel like I'm doing a good job of kind of you know carving a little space out for myself to to do that. Um, and just regarding things coming to an end, you know, not on my terms, which is yeah, I, there is a bit of a theme I must admit with the UFC. My mum said right after the uh, I was pulled out because of the the heart complication. My mum said you would have never stopped had you not been stopped, mm. and I knew she was dead right. I'd still be competing now. I'd still be you know chasing that nut right now, trying to trying to get myself to the top because I'm very good at being incredibly single minded. So it was although it was difficult at the time. In hindsight, it was very healthy for me to do that. I feel like a better martial artist now than I was when I retired, and my relationship with the UFC coming to an end abruptly as well. Same thing. I, I could have stayed on that bike for the rest of my life. You know, I remember having a, having a couple of conversations with Dana, um, actually backstage where at the, uh, the McGregor uh, Aldo press conference in Dublin. I remember having a conversation with Dana there and I said, I'm, I'm going to fight again soon. And he said, why would you, you've got a job for life. And I, and I thought to myself, well, that's him not quite understanding the person that I am. I, I don't, I don't like the idea of doing anything for life is terrifying. I, I have, you know, have you, I'm not sure whether you've heard of a word sonder. My, my sister introduced it to me. S O N D E R. It's looking at somebody else and realizing that they have got a life that is just as complex and as deep as your own. And I, I want to live a hundred lives. You know, I want to have been 
uh, a paleontologist and a pirate and a, a hockey player and a martial artist and an explorer. I want to do all of these things. If I get locked into a position, I can get a bit comfortable and I would have been very comfortable staying as a fighter for the UFC. I would have been very comfortable staying as a commentator for the UFC. These curveballs are good for me because it, it forces me to readdress where I'm at. And I mean, I've got some I've got some good plans for the coming year. I've had a couple of good offers come through. I've got boxing in November, which I'm going to be doing. And then in the new year, I've been offered a role with a, a, one of the promotions, which is going to, going to allow me to create a job which doesn't exist in mixed martial arts right now. So to me, I mean, everything is just taking the path that that is right for me. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. It's difficult to see it in the moment. You know, it's difficult to see it when you're being put on a flight home from Fight Island and, and, and you're not exactly sure why or what's been said and what's going on. And then like sitting in the dark for a month, like what is going on? Like, I'm a, do I have a job? Am I going to get fired? And I've got no idea what's going on. Mm. That was very frustrating. And and in the moment, it's difficult to to look ahead. But I have the the fortune of being able to be old enough now to look behind me and see what I've already come through. And the moments in my life that have taken a turn for what I thought was the worst and it ended up being the better. Mm. Um, so, you know, rolling with the punches and all that. I, I guess that's the philosophy that comes out of martial arts that applies to everything. Yeah, it's it's amazing to see how you adapt and all the opportunities you create when you think that the big one, well, when, you know, the public think that the big ones eluded you. Um, I had a similar conversation when I spoke with uh, Ariel Huani and uh, obviously he was, you know, he's covering this sport. He had the main opportunity taken away from him. You know, Dana banned him from, uh, or you know, made it extremely difficult for him to do any work from the inside. But then he went away and <clears throat> created just a juggernaut of a career on his own. And, you know, similar with yourself now, you, you've you've parted ways with the UFC, but you still, you know, you do these things with BT Sport, you've got the War Room, you know, you've, you've done so much, um, you know, the Outlaw uh, Picks podcast, there's, there's so much you do. It's really, it's really uh, encouraging to see and it's really inspiring. Um, when you look back on that sort of fight island, I think it was the, was it tr the Trinaldo fight um, that it all stemmed from. Are you sad yeah. about how things ended? And do you look back and think, maybe I wish, you know, things could have panned out differently. Maybe they could have acted differently. Maybe what if I acted differently? Or are you at peace with everything that happened now? Um. <clears throat> I, I certainly could have acted differently and I know that the UFC could have done as well. I mean, it was, it was, there's still not, there's still not a great deal of, of information about what happened, to be honest. I mean, it was a, no, what, what I could have done was maybe got a bit more sleep. You know, I was, I was very sleep deprived and, and I, I confronted a, 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 a colleague of mine that had been obstructive, very difficult to work with, you know, steering work away from me when my job was to represent the UFC in Europe. And uh, unfortunately, my mistake was I confronted her in front of other people. And that was what embarrassed her. And I don't know what she said. I still don't know what she said. But I also know that she's very embedded within the top people in the organization. And I'm not one for politics. I'm not one for playing corporate games. You know, I, I always knew that I was kind of on the fringe of the UFC, even when I was working for them full time, because after the event, when everybody gets back to the hotel bar and they're all hanging around until four o'clock in the morning, I'm not like I go back to my hotel room and I rewatch the card. 
And unfortunately, I'm just not a very good corporate player. I'm not very good at hanging out and drinking and schmoozing and making friends with the boys and going on golf trips. And a big part of the back the background of the UFC is that it's the schmoozing and shaking hands and being mates. I'm a loner. I'm a weirdo loner. And as you can see by this room full of action figures, like I spend most of my time in here watching fights. I, ju I just didn't really fit with the corporate model. And, and, I, and when people were becoming obstructive, they weren't being obstructive for me. They were being obstructive for the sport that I love, you know, and I'm watching the likes of Jack Shaw and Mason Jones and Nathaniel Wood all working incredibly hard to get themselves ahead and not having any support from the UK office, you know, not having any support from the team that are supposed to be linking them with the newspapers and the media. You know, it got to the point where I was getting messages from the media constantly trying to get me to connect them to the fan, to the fighters, because they weren't hearing anything back from the UK office. And that it just got frustrating for me because I'm I'm here for the sport. You know, I remember when I first started working for the UFC, when I first started fighting for the UFC back 2008, I was doing five interviews a day. The PR team were absolutely smashing it back then. They were they were they had a great team of people that loved to grow the sport. And unfortunately, due to money and politics and the sport being bought out by one person and another and that all just got deprioritized and the people that got put in those positions were clicky you know mm. it was it was clicky nonsense and it's just not for me like I, I could have definitely been a better version of myself I could have definitely handled myself better and been a bit less annoyed mm. at the person that I was talking to but I, I didn't swear I wasn't threatening I didn't, didn't raise my voice I was clearly frustrated at the person but the way that it was taken was massively blown out of proportions and that that is frustrating and you know, and, and I do, and a lot of it, I know, I know a lot of it stems from the situation with Herb Dean and Jai Herbert because that was the point when, the, well, that was the point when they started steering the media away from me. Yeah. That was the point when they stopped allowing me to have my say, because when I got back to Fight Island the next time around, literally the first question from John Morgan is, "Back at the scene of the crime," I'm like, "Come on, dude! Like, I know that you're prepped with those questions by the PR team. It was like a trap was set for me." Mm. And me being stupid and hard-headed, I'm not going to go, oh, yeah, no, I shouldn't have said anything. Herb's the gold standard referee in the world. He never makes a mistake. And even if he did make a mistake, he's got no reason to admit to it. If I'd have said that, maybe I'd be still sitting in my job, but I'd also hate myself. Mm. You know, I saw a guy that, stepped, that, that didn't do his job properly and I called him out on it. And the UFC told me to turn my back to him when he came over to me. Mm. I, there's just... They, it, there was just a lot of illogical stuff that went on in the end. And as frustrated as I am because I love the UFC as a brand, yeah. I don't like some of the people that work for them because it's that corporate nonsense. And it's the same in every industry. I, I'm, yeah, it, it's, it's frustrating. But at the same time, if they came to me now and said, hey, can you come back? We'll restart inside the octagon. You can commentate again. On my heart, I wouldn't do it. On my heart, I wouldn't do it because I just I wouldn't want to be back on the inside of that mm. machine. Like it needs people like me and Ariel on the outside, and Ariel is an absolute powerhouse, and and he's been inspiring to me over the last couple of years. We need people on the outside of the sport, pointing out what's going wrong, like matching Nate Diaz up with Hamzat Chimaev. We all know what that was. We all knew what that was, and fortunately, it worked out that that fight didn't happen. And then what 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 did we get from Dana the week after? It's a good thing that fight didn't happen. That would have been really bad. Like, yeah, man. 
Like we don't, we I don't have to buy your bullshit anymore because I know it's bullshit. Like you know what you're doing. It was an assassination attempt. Like they were trying to bury him before he left his UFC contract. I I, I can't like and I, I like I see Bisping on on shows like like you know trashing me for what I said, and then backing up my opinion. I'm like I just I I couldn't. Sergey Lavrov, a random name to throw out there sits in front of the UN Security Council with delegates from around the world and lies through his teeth. Lies through his teeth because he's owned by Putin and by the Kremlin. I felt like that working for the UFC. I felt like I had to toe this line, and I don't feel like I have to anymore. Like My nickname's The Outlaw for a reason. I'm not supposed to be inside the organisation. And if I am, I'm supposed to be unpicking it and taking it down. I mean, that's just my nature. <laughs> I love that man. You actually answered two questions I had ready in 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 there. I did want to speak about you know the outlaw persona. I, I I love that. So that's why I gravitate towards. I've always gravitated towards you. You know this sort of you you mentioned there. You you know you're a weirdo. You you like all these things. My room looks very similar. I've got a you know Luke Skywalker. I've got a, a Piccolo from Dragon Ball Z. I got Scrooge McDuck on my desk in front of me. But I just love all that stuff and. Um, that's why I gravitate towards you, man. And uh, yeah, well, you mentioned about the UFC there. It's, it is hard because for me, I, I'm a I'm a diehard UFC fan. I just I want to love the organization. But when, like as you mentioned there, when you see something like a Hamzat, Nate Diaz, it just makes you feel a little bit, you know, it makes you feel a bit sick, and it makes you feel like I don't know, dirty to watch it. It it, it just didn't sit right with me at all. So. I hope that the UFC isn't going to continue going in that direction. I like to stay optimistic, but who knows? Who knows? I mean, you know, they'll do controversial things because they make money. And in the day of in the day and age of Jake Paul, unfortunately, I think Dana feels like he has to do things like that to you know to to keep the sport moving forward. You know, for me, the UFC has already established itself as the figurehead of the sport. There's no doubt in that, and and I don't think for any second that any other organization is going to come close to where the UFC are and what they're doing. Like they will always be the premiership for mixed martial arts. Yeah. They just need to act like the premiership and, you know, they need to act like the premier league in the sport. They need to, they need to be the custodians of the sport, you know? And when I first started, started working with the UFC, you know, like I remember going to charities in Sweden and handing out money from the UFC to support the grassroots organizations. And, you know, of course, they're supporting of the IMAFs and, and those kind of things like they do lots of good things within the sport. But then it, it also has to be the, the example also has to be set from the top down, you know, like. That Chumayev against Diaz fight felt more like it just it just felt like an execution you know what i mean and that to me felt like you've got one person or one small group of people that are utilizing one part of the roster to punish the other part of the roster that's not sport that's not sport that's dog fighting that's that's it's just ugly it's just an ugly thing and it made me feel uncomfortable it made me feel uncomfortable because i love the sport and and that would damage it you know imagine if nate had got really really badly hurt mm. like straight away it would have cast a shadow over the UFC. It would have been all over the news in a negative way. And it would have made us all feel uncomfortable because we knew it was happening. It was fortunate the MMA gods shined down on us on that day. But I also feel like there was some meddling in the background to make sure that didn't happen. Because I think the closer the fight got, the more the UFC realized how much they were going to bury themselves if Nate got hurt. Yeah. And he was most likely going to get hurt. 
you know, it's the same thing. It's the same thing as the very last fight that I called. And, and this this is another good example of the, the the nonsense, the posturing and the propaganda. Like that last fight that I called was Max Holloway against Calvin Cater, right? UFC, what is it? UFC on ABC one, the very first mm. time that, that UFC had been on ABC. First time combat sports have been on ABC in 20 something years. And then we're going into the fifth round and you've got one guy that's being beaten senseless by another fighter. Right now, there's no reason why that fight shouldn't have been stopped at the end of the fourth round. No discredit to Calvin Cater, but he didn't gain anything by taking that fifth round beating. But what we did see was the clip coming out of Dana talking to Hunter and being like, "Hey, we need to make sure he goes straight to a straight to a doctor after that." You know, and it looks kind of oh, they just caught this on camera from across the arena. The dude was mic'd up, like the receiver <laughs> for the microphone was attached to the camera that was filming him from across the other side of the arena. Like the whole thing is staged to protect the UFC. Mm. Like, and I watched that and I'm like, that's just dirty. Yeah. Like actually do something to protect the fighter. Don't mm. do something to protect the sport or the or the, the company if the fighter gets damaged. Yeah. That that took that hurt me to watch that because I could see the game being played. Like this this pretending that they had some kind of concern for Calvin Cater. I just didn't buy it. Mm. And I'm standing there keeping my mouth shut because I've already said too much a few weeks before. And I'm already right on the edge of the chopping block thinking this might be exactly what I was talking about a couple of weeks ago. You know, like why did not, why did somebody not get involved and stop that fight when it needed to be stopped? Calvin Cater's not the same fighter that he was after that fight. You know, it's, it's, it's horrible to say, but I've seen it before. I've seen fighters take one, two, three more shots than they absolutely needed to. And they've never been the same again. You know, People don't really, I love this sport. I love a damn good knockout. I love someone getting their clock absolutely cleaned. But what I don't want to see is that person affected for the rest of their life. Like we know the risks that we're taking on getting into there. You don't want to feel like you're up against the referee and the organization though. That's not, that's not sport. Yeah. It does feel like lip service a bit when you, you know, you see clips like that, but then any sort of conscious attempt to start a fighters union or anything that's going to make a real difference seems to get shut down quite quickly. So it's hard to sort of take those moments genuine when you've, you know, seen instances like that. I've I've just been on I've been on the inside for too long. You know, I remember watching Frankie Edgar put his world title belt in the overhead locker flying back from Canada, and the ring girls were sitting in first class, and and I and I'm like, this this doesn't make sense to me. I remember I remember sitting around a table at Red Rock Casino at the steakhouse at Red Rock Casino at the very first fighters summit. And I remember watching one guy who I don't know who he was or what he did or anything. He looked like a like a Klingon to me for for, for Dana and his mates. I watched him get paid ten thousand dollars to drink a bottle of hot sauce. And I was sitting there having just headlined the co-main event of the Oto Arena. And I got the same amount of money that he got for drinking the hot sauce. I was on five and five and he got $10,000 for drinking hot sauce in front of all these fighters. I don't know who that was to benefit because I know that half of the guys around that table weren't making the same money that he was making drinking that hot sauce. I'm like, so it, it, it was just, it was a slow unraveling for me while I was on the inside and, 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 and I still love the UFC as it is, but I, I can't help but feel like it's tainted by the humans involved. And and I don't hate the UFC because of that. It just reminds me that humans can be less than perfect sometimes. Yes, well, they certainly can. And I, I appreciate you speaking so 
openly and honestly on that. It's really refreshing to hear, like you said, like with guys like you and Ariel, it's really important that we have that sort of voice in the sport to to bring some reality back to the situation. And um, I'm conscious of your time here, so I, so I, don't I, worry I about it. I um, just a couple quick questions left for you, if if that's okay. Sure. Um, when I mentioned that you were coming on the show in our newsletter. Um, we had a couple of questions come in and people were asking about the, the GSP fight because obviously GSP has been on this show before and um, the word armbar kept coming up. Um, I wonder if you could maybe talk us through inside the mind of, of Dan Hardy when he was in that brutal, brutal armbar that everyone thought was curtains. <laughs> Um, I actually had a, a really good conversation with George about this. I think it's on the BT Sport YouTube channel and we watched the fight through and discuss it. And, you know, it was, it was, I mean, of course, you know, I'm, I'm stepping into a world title fight against a guy that nobody else has really been able to get close to. And I knew everybody fully expected me to get submitted in the first round. Um, you know, I, I remember feeling so counted out that my determination was, was, I'm just going to give everything that I've got, regardless of what happens, because that's the one thing that you can't question about an individual. You can tell when someone's given everything in a fight. And I also remember that, well, first of all, I'd, I'd already accepted that if a limb got broken, it was broken. And that's a part of the sport. You know, I've, I've been in a couple of deep arm bars before and I've managed to scramble my way out of them. But scrambling my way out of them because I was already accepting that it might break and I'm all right with that. Like the, that that acceptance was was a big part of the escape, because in the moments when I may have thought, okay, this is the point where it's going to broken, and and I tapped, I just didn't have that thinking in my head. The other thing I know is it's how difficult to break an arm. Like most of the time, when we see a, a damage to an arm, it's dislocated at the elbow. Most of the time, an arm doesn't break. I mean, a very rare circumstance when Frank Mir got the uh, Tim Sylvia, and that he broke both bones in his forearm, but that's heavyweight strength. I'm not thinking that GSP, no matter how strong he is at welterweight, he's going to be able to snap my forearm. So I knew that the only thing that was going to most likely happen was going to be my my elbow dislocating. And I have very, very stiff elbows. I have very flexible shoulders and very stiff elbows from years of Taekwondo. So I knew he was going to have a really hard time snapping it, which was going to buy me some time to wriggle out of it. Second of all, I, I'm a tie boxer. You know what I mean? Like the thinking for tie boxing is, well, if you break one hand, you hit him with the other. You know, if 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 you hit them with a with with a leg and you break your foot, then you you kick them with the other foot, or you kick them with the swollen one. You know, eight limbs is eight weapons, and I will use one if I have one left. So that that was it was a level of acceptance going into the fight, a level of stubbornness being in the fight, and also you know, I, I guess a level of technical understanding that I felt like I had just a bit of wiggle room for my elbow, so there wasn't enough control of my elbow for him to really fully hyperextend it without me being able to just kind of uh, and just keep kind of switching over that fulcrum point but ultimately i mean you know he could have he could have killed me on that night i wasn't going to give up i wasn't going to give up because I, because the, the feeling of being counted out was one of the most motivating things i've ever felt and and stepping in there against gsp knowing full well that nobody thought i was going to win i think i was a plus 900 underdog or something ridiculous like that it was it was my opportunity to prove to people that I wasn't going to go anywhere. So even if they didn't like me or they didn't think I was capable of being a top flight contender, 
the one thing that they wouldn't be able to question is my determination. And, you know, I feel like if I've got anything it's a super, as a superpower, it's my determination. <laughs> it's got me through a few bad spots in the past. Amazing. I love that, man. The, um, the final question that I ask every guest that comes on this show, uh, regardless of the topic, and it could be anything, it could be your work, it could be your family. But right now for Dan Hardy, what makes life worth living? Oh, you, you've asked that question just at the right time this week because uh, I'm I'm an uncle for the first time ever. Uh, my my little sisters had a had a baby boy, so that my week my whole week was just turned upside down when that happened. You know, mm. kind of waiting to hear the good news and then him arriving, and you know, that was it's been a pretty special week because of that. I have to admit, and, and honestly, you know, everything that I do, the the the, the motivating factor is the people around me. You know. The, the people around me. I have an amazing family. I have an amazing girlfriend, Veronica. You know, we we spend all day, every day together. We train together. We discuss martial arts. We argue about it constantly. You know, I, I'm I'm fortunate that I get to wake up every day and do what I love to do with the people that I love to do it with. Um, I don't know what I'm, what more I need really. You know, I don't know what more I need. I, I have I have a good group of people around me, and I have the enthusiasm to keep kind of trying to better myself for them yeah that's what gets me going in the morning being a better version for the people around me that's a beautiful place to be in and um and i imagine comics and figures play a part in there as well mate my lego collection is 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 ridiculous i <laughs> my office is on the other side of the building and i have glass cases with lego from the early 80s in there that i've been collecting since i was a child but you know, but the thing is, it's like that. Uh, my Lego collection is my pride and joy. Yeah. But as soon as my little nephew was born, he can have mm. all of it. You know, wow. he can have all of it and all these figures. Veronica said the other day, "What happens if he comes in here and he wants to oh, wants to take one down and open it up?" I'm like, "Let's get it open. Let's play with wow. it. I don't care." You know, That's it's powerful. it's a it's a a powerful thing having having special people in your life, and I'm fortunate to have a lot. I love that man. Do you have the uh, Do you have the Lego Death Star? You know what? I don't have the Lego Death Star, but I do have the Millennium Falcon, the the giant expert oh, wow. one. I haven't got the Death Star yet, but I've I have I've got the Millennium Falcon. It's still sitting in the box as well, and I have I have the majority of the Star Wars stuff. I got, uh, yeah, one of my pride and joys is is one of my Millennium Falcons that Frank Mir bought me. I helped oh, wow. him out with his uh, fight for Nagira, and uh, and he, he showed up the next day with a with a, a big box of Lego for me. He knows the way to my heart. Frank Mir does. <laughs> I love that. Man, I love all that geeky stuff. I'm actually, after this, I'm on my way for a, a half-hour drive to pick up a bo- um, a collection I found on Facebook Marketplace for Star Wars Mr. Potato Heads. So if uh, <laughs> that gives you an insight nice. to how weird I am. Um, nice. Where's the new figure we've just got? Let me show you this. This is yet to find a space on on the wall, but this is Veronica's contribution. It's a it's a, a holographic oh, wow. Emperor Palpatine stitch. Oh, that's amazing! I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of fun here. We have a lot of fun. Here. There's always toys showing up. A Lego castle arrived yesterday that I have yet to build, which is from the eighties. That'll add to my collection later today. Amazing, man! I love it so much. Look, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, it's been an absolute honor. Uh, I've actually 
I think I've met you twice in the past in person as as a fan. I think I met you at Body Power in 2017. Um, I remember you saying you felt a bit out of place around, you know, a lot of grown men in stringer t-shirts. And um, again, at uh, at Cage Warriors, I think it was the Jack Shaw title fight at the time. And um, been a big fan of yours for years, man. So it's uh, it means a lot to me that you came on the podcast today. And I appreciate all the insight and philosophy you brought with you. It's been a really fun conversation. Thank you, my friend. It's been enjoyable talking to you. I'm sure we'll do it again sometime.